in Lesson 16. We are, boy, we're about to land the plane here. Lesson 16, uh, we are going to be covering Chapter 13 today. And just to go back a little bit, just sort of summarize, we're getting to the end of the book. Really since Chapter 4, we've seen the Lord kind of portrayed in different roles. We've talked about uh, this, uh, this sort of the, the context of, of a court, sort of a courtroom scene in which God is presented as a prosecuting attorney uh, against his people and bringing indictments against his people as well as uh, numerous evidences against them. So he's this uh, attorney. He is the, also the judge and the jury because he's presenting the evidence, but then he's also the one that examines the evidence and renders the verdict. And then also is the one who uh, executes the, the, the sentence. And so he is the executioner, if you want to say it that way. He's also the parole board because people along the way, once they've been sentenced, of course, they, their behavior and conduct is ex- examined. And so the Lord is examining the hearts of his people to see if they are truly repentant. And there have been times along the way where it seemed as if God's people were broken and humble, but then the Lord gives us insight into what's really going on in their hearts, and we realize that it's just, in many cases, words. They're just saying the words that uh, speak of repentance, but there's actually no follow-through. And so he's sort of presented in these different ways. And then in chapter 11, we saw him cast as the lover of his people. If you want to look there real quick, just to review, verse 1 of chapter 11 says, When Israel was a youth... I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And, there's, and so there's, there's been these times where the Lord is sort of, he's trying to get his people to reflect back to the good old days, like the early days of when he called them out of slavery. And so these were, these were those times when the nation was founded and they were under the protective uh, care of God. And yet, this reference to Israel's privileged beginning is quickly followed by a sad reference to their history of of stubbornness, obstinance, and hardness. In verse 2, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the the Baals and burning incense to idols. And so they had this privileged start and beginning, this blessed blessed position as God's children, as God's son. It will be used in in the singular here, his firstborn. And yet their response was this habitual idolatry. They kept sacrificing, they kept burning incense, and yet God's commitment to love them did not change. And so he's taking them back to their earliest days, uh, giving them every reason in the world that they should have been faithful and obedient, and they continue to do these things kind of in a way, go through the motions, and yet their hearts are far from him. But even taking all that into consideration, the, love, the, the Lord keeps affirming His love for them. And this is verified in the next couple of verses. Verse 3, Yet it is I who, brought, or who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So like a loving father reaching down and, and teaching a little toddler to walk, teaching them to take their first steps, bearing with them in all of their stumblings and in their awkward ways, the Lord is caring for them, and yet again, how do they, how do they respond in return? With, with ingratitude, not acknowledging the Lord, not recognizing, not living up to the truths that God had revealed to them in words and deeds. 
And so it says they did not realize it was I who, who healed them. And then in verse 4 as well, we see, we see even more evidences of God's care. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. And then, and then we have this, uh, these demonstrations of, of nurturing. He says, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. And so it just, you just hear this over and over again, how God, God has always been doing this. He has been easing the burdens of his people, lifting the yoke giving them rest, bending down, showing mercy, giving them sustenance, giving them water, giving them food. Uh, and an example, even reference here back to those wilderness time, those days in the wilderness when God provided for them, and yet even in that they questioned, questioned God uh, faithlessly uh, in, that, in that experience. So we have these evidences of God's past, a tender loving care, condescending and giving them nourishment, and yet God has never relinquished his status as a lover of Israel, irrespective of the fact that they do not deserve any of that love. And so you just keep seeing these, these past, these evidences of their stubbornness, and yet we get sort of brought up to the brink where we hear about the judgment that's coming, and we get to this point where we think it's, it's just over, it's done, they're, 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 God's going to wipe them off the planet, and, and yet he continues to affirm his covenant faithfulness and his plans for them uh, in the future. We saw a reminder of the hope of the future, which began in verse 5 of chapter 11 and runs through the end of that, uh, that chapter. A, a reminder really goes through the rest, for the, really the remainder of the book, because the book will end on a, on a note of a future hope. Um, but just reminding the people of God that this is not about them taking the initiative. It's never been about them taking the initiative. It's always been about God taking the initiative with them. And even in their repentance, we've looked at passages that show us that they are culpable to repent. And yet, even in that repentance and restoration, God still has to turn them, right? He still has to work in them to do that, of course, we have explicitly in the New Testament references that repentance and faith are a gift from God, right? So this, this entire thing, folks, I mean, salvation, redemption, all of these things are all wrapped up in God's sovereign mercy. So it's his initiative because they wouldn't take any initiative. And then in verse 8, we got that incredible example of this, this amazing reversal, and it's really the core of this entire prophecy, this, this hope. Uh, that is solely resident in God because it could not be in man because God is the only one who would exercise this kind of grace and mercy. Yet man still will fight and resist uh, for his own ways. He'll still, there'll still be this struggle with, with autonomy and, and wanting to have what we want when we want it. So this hope, this hope was and is sort of shackled by sin back in the past, and it is still a present-day situation. As Hosea details uh, these things with with his current audience, and this precedent continues today in its application, we are still resistant people, um, as they were a resistant people, yet this hope has been and is kept alive by the Lord's faithfulness. So the Lord's faithfulness is the only thing that allows salvation history to reach its ultimate goal and to redeem God's people once and for all. And what we'll see this morning is that this hope will 
It'll come to fruition, but only after the Lord deals with his people. He, in other words, again, there's this, this, the Lord has to deal with the sin, right? He's, 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 got, he's going to bring justice. He's going to bring chastisement. He's going to discipline his people, and this discipline stage is still coming because Hosea has been prophesying about this. It's going to happen. The Lord will purge his people, and finally they will repent in the true sense of repentance. And so we'll, we'll be touching on these things. Like I said, well, this is the crescendo of all this is going to happen in two weeks uh, when we come back and we, we finish up with the last chapter of the book. But let me just read for us here Hosea 13, and then we'll, uh, we'll walk through this together. Hosea 13, verse 1, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they will be like the morning cloud and like dew, which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney." Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities, and your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and princess? I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is stored up, the, the pains of childbirth came upon, come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight, though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness and his fountain will become dry and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Again, you just, you read that and you're like, okay, whoa, where are we going here? All right, it's like... Uh, the love, the lover of Israel. Okay, he's, but he's gonna, yeah. But okay, we got still again. We've got to deal with this, right? Just because the Lord is going to do this work among them and in them in the future does not mean that judgment. This is going to somehow delay God's judgment in in their present situation. So let's just work through this. It starts out in verse one with more evidences of Ephraim's depravity and the depths of sin into which it had sunk. It says when Ephraim spoke. All right, there we go. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. So, 
Uh, for the most part, what we've seen when we, we come across this phrase or this title, uh, Ephraim, <clears throat> in most cases this has been a designation really for the entire, sort of the, the northern kingdom as a whole. But, but here the emphasis is and se- seems to be not only that, but it is on the historical prominence of this particular tribe which led to an intense pride. Of course, the pride was not just among Ephraim. There's already been mentions of pride being a problem throughout the northern kingdom. But it just brings up this, this, uh, this again, this place of, of privileged position, prominent position. And so we have this connection between Ephraim's prominent position and the problem of pride, as well as the divine judgment that inevitably comes as a result of that. So they had... They had violated their covenant and were in God's book as good as dead for their ongoing apostasy. Uh, and things were not, not getting better. In fact, they were steadily growing from bad to worse, verse 2. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. And they say of them, let the men who sacrifice Kiss the calves. So despite the Lord's explicit prohibitions of all such idle crafting, they persisted in their sins. And and the end of this verse, it's another challenging sort of line to interpret, but the text, the text literally reads, To them they are saying, Sacrificers of mankind, calves they will kiss. In fact, the ESV and I know a lot of you uh, use that translation, says, uh, and now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. So the idea in the ESV is that they were perhaps literally sacrificing humans, which is a possibility, Uh, You could go to Psalm 106, verse 34, and it says this of Israel's history. It says, they they did not destroy the peoples. And so this is talking about when they had gone, come through the wilderness experience and gone into Canaan. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. So you do have here an explicit reference to this, this issue of sacrificing their children to these false deities. Um, and then some of the language that we actually see throughout the book of Hosea regarding unfaithfulness and harlotry there in verse 39. So this could be the meaning. It could be referring literally to human sacrifice. Uh, Either way, this was clearly uh, an abominable thing before God and one that deserved the most severe judgment, uh, which is described for us in the next verse, which sort of parenthetically just as a way of application Think about our culture and what's going on in our culture with our kids. You know, I mean, there's a in, in a symbolic way. I think with it, the, uh, the this my generation is in symbolically sacrificing their kids, 
right, their sons and daughters in pursuit of idolatry, right? I mean, think about the many forms that idolatry takes, just people pursuing prominence and prestige and career and materialism, and then in the process, how many parents have sacrificed their kids, so to speak, in that. And then we have, of course, in our culture, the example of abortion, right? So there's it's, it's both. I mean, it's, it's, we go from one, this side of that spectrum all the way to the other in our culture, and then when you hear about the sure judgment of God coming on His people for these things, and you wonder, right? I mean, how much longer, right? How much longer will the Lord tolerate this level of, of wickedness? Verse 3, Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud, And like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. So all of these these similes really conveying the same idea, and it's just the idea of transience. It's it's not going to be long. It's not going to last long, right? Whether it's a cloud or it's smoke flowing out of, you think of just, you know, smoke going out of a window, which, by the way, I don't even know what those things are that those people are smoking in their cars, but those things produce a lot of smoke. I mean, there's been a couple of times where you go up to an intersection and somebody rolls their window down and it is just like, it's amazing. I mean, what is, it, what, is it steam? Is that what it is? It's, it's just like, I mean, you just feel for the people in the car. It's like, how are they dealing with that? So my wife, the first time we ever saw it, it's just like this cloud, massive cloud came out of the front of this car. So... Anyway, it's that, it's that, it's your coffee this morning. You got your hot cup of coffee and, and you look at it and on the top of it, right, right at the surface, unless you like lukewarm coffee, but it, right at the surface, the steam's coming off, but it's not like the steam's still there this far above the cup, right? I mean, it's only right there. And as soon as it, it gets in two inches away from the liquid, it goes away. And that's exactly the imagery that's being stirred up here and kind of called to our attention that, this, uh, that the, the, re- the reality that Israel would quickly pass from, and here's the contrast, from a place of prominence to a place of obscurity and captivity. So even though, so, the, so it's this, this uh, po- position of prosperity and, and um, a blessing, this e- Ephraim has been described in this as, you know, they've been enjoyed this privileged position, but literally like that. They're going to go from a place of privileged position and prestige to being gone, right? All that's going to just evaporate like steam or like the, um, uh, like the dew on the grass in the morning. And then we have more reminiscences. This is sort of, again, sort of taking us back, and we've seen this. Hosea does this often and, and does it even, it seems to be he does it more frequently as the book goes along. Verse 4, yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. So this first part of of verse 4, it's actually an exact echo of the first part of verse 12 back in chapter 9. And so it's this reference back to the Exodus. And ever since the Exodus, Yahweh has been their ever faithful God. And it's interesting, there's there's a reminder uh, this, this is a reminder of, of this at the outset of the Ten Commandments. If you go back to uh, Exodus chapter 20, you'll, you'll see this at the very beginning before those ten words, ten commandments are, are given. There's this introduction that sort of sets up the Ten Commandments, which is uh, sort of a rehearsal of that faithfulness 
and its inception back in God leading them out of captivity from Egypt. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says, And then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the Lord says, I I did that for you when I established you as a nation. And back then, as well as currently for Hosea's audience, that called for a reciprocal loyalty. So it's like, because he's going from in Exodus 20 saying, this is what I've done. And then now he's going to say, and this is what you should do, right? In light of what I've done, this is how you should live your life. And so we, we find this expectation of loyalty on the part of the people in the very next verse in Exodus 20 with verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So we have this reminder, I am your God and this is what I've done. And then right off the bat, therefore, this is how you should live. You should have no other gods before or besides me. I am your exclusive God. And sadly, for the most part, they, they didn't pay any attention to that fact and yet he remains their God. And this is, this is the story that unfolds in Exodus. Because once you get beyond the giving of those commandments and stipulations in the chapters following Exodus 20, you get to this narrative in Exodus 32 and 33, which we've looked at, which is essentially the story of the faithful God and the unfaithful people. Right? So the Lord says, this is what I've done. This is how you should live. And then he, before we're even through Exodus, we already have an example of the unfaithfulness on the part of the people and not just the unfaithfulness of the people, but what follows the unfaithfulness of the people. An affirmation that God is faithful, right? And that's chapter 33 of Exodus. And it talks about how God is steadfast and compassionate, merciful, faithful God and all of, all of that. So when we get to Hosea, it's, it's, it's another stage of Israel's history, but it's the same story. The people are unfaithful and disloyal, but God is committed to the relationship and ever faithful. And this is asserted in the second half of that last half of verse 4 there in Hosea 13. And you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. So he's saying, I, I, am the, I am the only true God and I am the personal God of this nation that, that I am calling to repentance. And of course, the people of Israel had, had reneged on this obligation again and again, uh, which leads us to think the Lord might be done with them, that he might be done with his nation. But we have to be reminded what we've already learned in, in this particular book, other passages in the Old Testament, and even in principle, folks, we, you could go to the New Testament and you could see the, these same affirmations applied to even in, in our, our age, the church, and how these, these are, these, there's, there's elements of discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament, and there are elements of continuity. There are things that continue in principle, and this is one of those. In fact, Paul picks up on this in 2 Timothy 2. He's uh, writing to Timothy, and he says there, Remember, this is verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. 
For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. And then in your Bibles there, starting in verse 11, it's probably indented. This is some consider this to be an early hymn of the church. So it's sort of treated that way in the translation. 2 Timothy 2.11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. But then notice, so you go, oh no, verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. So this, this, in, this application is is for us, I mean, I don't think we, again, we've got to be careful that we don't just point the finger, right, at Israel and say, how could they, right? I mean, how many times have you been faithless, <laughs> right? I mean, how many times have we, have we stumbled? How many times have we rebelled? How many times have we disobeyed? How many times have we shut our ears to what the Lord, Lord's, Lord has to say in His Word? So our faithfulness wavers at times, and yet what Paul affirms here is that even though our faithfulness wavers, God's faithfulness never wavers. He never wavers. Why? Because God cannot deny Himself, right? Which goes back to Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9, where He asked those questions, Can't, what, what am I to do with, with Ephraim? What am I going to do with these people? And then He says, I am not going to exterminate them. I am not going to turn back on my covenant promises to them. Why? Because I'm not like you. <laughs> I'm, not un- I'm, not, I'm not one to just throw in the towel, right? I'm, I'm going to maintain my faithfulness. And again, God's going to, in His sovereignty, He's going to bring these things about, right? So He will accomplish all of this because He cannot deny Himself. The Lord is their God and His care for them was documented throughout the wilderness experience and wanderings. And this is affirmed in the next verse, verse 5. He says, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. It literally reads, I knew you in the wilderness. And so it's actually the word for knowing, but many, many times in the, in the Scriptures when you see the word know, it's not speaking just about intellectual knowledge, it's speaking of relationship. You know, when it says Adam knew Eve... It didn't mean that Adam knew some things about Eve. Like, he didn't just know her name, right? It says when he knew her, it says, and she gave birth, right? She, she conceived, speaking of, of more of an intimacy. And that's why the translation, for instance, the New American Standard, it actually, instead of saying, I uh, knew you, it actually translates it as, I cared for you. Because they're, they're, they're trying to pick up on this, on the context of God's relationship with them in the wilderness, and again, just the context of what's going on in Hosea and all these references back to, to God's uh, shepherding them, if you will. So he knew them. It's this concept of intimate knowledge. He had elected them. He had chosen them. And for that reason, he cared for them. And because of that, they were to have known, connecting back to the previous verse, that he was their only God and Savior But as we've seen, they did not. And this is revealed again for us in verse 6. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they 
forgot me. Now again, this is even this is even more condemning in light of all of the warnings that they had received throughout their history, going all the way back to their beginnings, as we looked at this even this last week. Uh, we, we had made reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me just mention that again because, again, this is not, folks, the Lord does not usually throw pop quizzes. He doesn't usually surprise us with things that we're not prepared for in the sense that God's not trying to conceal who He is from us. God is revealing Himself to us. Creation is revealing things about Him, um, preaching things, if you will, about Him. And then we have the inscribed Word that is telling us what God wants us to do and who He is and who we are. And this was exactly the, the way it was with Israel. The Lord, when He established them, said, this is what I expect. And if you don't live faithfully this way, then this is what you can expect to happen. And so he gives them these warnings. You could go back to Deuteronomy 8. He says in verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments or His ordinances, His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built houses and lived in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It goes on and talks about the wilderness, uh, uh, the wilderness experience, and then says, verse 17, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And then notice 19 and 20, he says, It shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So again, there's no, no surprises. No surprises here. The Lord told them, this is what I expect. If you, if you don't want to listen to my voice, if you don't want to heed these warnings, then this is what's going to happen. And this is exactly what is coming to fruition. Because of that high accountability. Again, it's like the Lord is mentioning these things because He's saying the consequences are going to be severe. Why so severe? Because you sinned against the light. You sinned against the revelation that God had given to you, right? There were no secrets. God didn't hide this. You knew this. It's the difference in you expecting sometimes, you know, we expect our kids to, to just sort of know what to do, right, to please us as parents. And so you and your, as a parent, in your mind, you think it's clear, right, that this is what should happen with one of your kids. And if they don't do it, then you get ruffled about that. You get upset. You might even discipline them. But that's, that's different than it being something that you have repeatedly covered time and time and time again with your kids. And you've told them, listen, if you, do, if you don't do this or if you do this, this is what's going to happen, right? And it's like you, when you discipline your kids, you sit them down. And before you spell out the severity of what is coming, sometimes you'll make reference back to the many conversations that you've had, right? So you want them to know, listen, I'm not just emoting. I'm not here just, just I'm, I'm angry because I didn't get my way. No, this is serious. 
and it's severe because of the number of times you've been told this or that. And so you've, it's, been, it's been clear, which makes the accountability go higher and higher, and that's, that's really what we're, we're seeing in this passage, a high level of accountability. Listen to, to Hosea 13.6 again. And they, or you, you can actually translate it, when they had their pasture. So the Lord is saying, when, and, and God is the one feeding them. So it says, it's saying, when they had their pasture, when, when I, the Lord, fed them, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So we're talking, these are like plump cows. All right, these are plump cows and a lot of green grass, rich grass, and yet they did not acknowledge the Lord. They forgot the Lord. Exactly what Deuteronomy predicted would happen if they did not acknowledge God fully. And this gross ingratitude demands the exercise of God's righteous judgment depicted in verses 7 and 8. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I, also, I will also devour them like a lioness as a wild beast would tear them. Pretty graphic images. Now, again, we've seen the lion thing. If you've been with us for the, 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 throughout, throughout this series, we've mentioned the imagery, this, the figure of the lion, and how that's been used in different ways. Right? Sometimes it's been used as, in this case, God devouring, but in other cases as if God is just ex- exercising his authority. In fact, in one case, to such an extent that he's, that authority is calling out to his people and causing them to return to him. Right? So you kind of have to look at each individual occurrence and decide what's, what's going on there. But nevertheless, graphic image, image, images going on here and a very frightening picture as the Lord is portrayed as various kinds of ferocious beasts. And again, these weren't, these, I mean, okay, we, we have to watch the animal planet to know what that's about. You know what I'm saying? It's like when, when Hosea is writing to these people, folks, they, this picture on the right, they saw this stuff, right? So they, they saw these things in their lives. These were scenes that they would have been familiar with because they had seen it in real life. And so indeed, the caring and protecting shepherd of verses 4 to 6 had to become in judgment the predator of his wayward sheep. So again, these images go back and forth. In one case, it's like the Lord is the one that's provided and cared for them. And then all of a sudden, we get these other images of God in judgment is going to, to be this, this ultimate predator. And how ironic, right? But how demanding of the true justice of God. And yet, once again, this does not signal the ultimate and final extermination of, the, of, of God's flock as, as we uh, note I have noted and in, in, in then moving into these uh, next few verses because God is God is not man, right? And God will exercise His love, and the long-suffering Shepherd will have mercy on His people yet in the future. That's the amazing promise, and that that is what we will talk about next next time as it begins in chapter four, really really in verse four of chapter fourteen and runs through the end of the book. 
Now, verse 9, which is another is difficult, difficult to translate. You have to add some words in there to make it make sense. So if you've got a certain translation, you'll see words in italics in some of your translations. When you see in your Bible uh, italics like that, all that means is that the, typically the translators are supplying words to make it make sense. Because sometimes in the Greek or the Hebrew, uh, it, it, if you just translated it as it is, you would be like, that's not even a sentence. It's, it's, a, it's a fragment. So what they do is they try to, they try to again, putting it into our, in, into our language, they're trying to smooth it out a little bit. Uh, but the, the NAS reads this way, and it's the one, this is the translation up here. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Uh, which is similar to the NIV, the NIV, New International Version here says, you are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. So again, the irony of this whole matter, all of this judgment is coming upon them because they are doing it to themselves. Right? So they are shooting themselves in the foot, right? They are spoiling, they are rotting, they are deteriorating, they are being destroyed because they are against the Lord, the one, who's, the one who's the protector and the one who cares for them. So the very person that is feeding them, the very person that is taking care of them, they're against the person who cares the most, right? Again, if you're a parent, some of you have been through this, right, in, in, in life where you, you're, you love your kids more than anybody and yet sometimes your kids treat you as if you're the last person, right, that they want to talk to and be around, and yet you're the one that has changed their dirty diapers and fed them food and cared for them and, I mean, spent years of your life investing in them, and yet you're not always greeted with gratitude, right? You're not always greeted with, with, with respect and, and submission compliance in, in those things. And so that's, that's the irony. I mean, the irony is that these people are, it's, it's self-destructive what they're doing in these idolatrous practices. It's, it's self-fulfilling prophecy, in a way. Now, now, verses 10 and 11, again, more condemning evidences, as, uh, and these have to do with the futility of human kingship. This goes back to that tragic account in 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel was told by the Lord, uh, to give them a go, give them a king because that, that's what they want, you know, and they want a specific thing, and so so give it to them, and so it's it's referencing back to again the people's lack of trust in God as their king. Uh, again, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with them desiring a king uh, because one day they're going to have a king, right? So it's not kingship per se. Generally speaking, that's the problem. It's the fact that they were wanting to compete with the, the nations, right? They were really, they were, the motivation behind what they were wanting is the fact that they were always looking over the fence, right? And saying, what's everybody else doing? Let's be like that. And then in the very criteria that they set, the kind of king that they wanted, right? They demanded a certain kind of king. And so they weren't, they weren't listening to the Lord on these, on these issues. And so the Lord just talking about the futility of that, of, of those, those motivations and those desires. And so with that in the background, sort of in, as far as Hosea's audience, that's in their mind. We have this 
synopsis of Hosea's current situation. We have the past history and then we have future outcome. All these things are in view. Verse 10, Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princess. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Actually, that last line is in the future. It's, I, I, will, I will take him away in my wrath. So this, this is a prophecy concerning the ultimate doom of the monarchy in the northern kingdom. And then verse 12, this verse uh, graphically depicts all of the perversities of Ephraim's wickedness as sort of bundled up like a package and ready to be opened up by the Lord at their time of judgment. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. It's, it's like we have this different places in Scripture that speak of people's sins as if there's like a, a barrel or a cup. And so this thing's filling up and filling up and filling up. And they're just adding sin upon sin. So it's like we have all this idolatry and this unfaithfulness and pride and self-sufficiency and obstinance all bundled up and sitting there until God is good and ready to execute His justice. So it says His sin is stored up. In fact, it's from the same root word that is used in Psalm 119. You're familiar, I think, with this verse, verse 11. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might, may not sin against you. Right? So when we, in some translations say, um, I have not treasured it, but they translate it as, I have done what? What's the other typical translation for that? If you're used, if you've memorized this passage before. I have what? Stored it, stored it right? So I've, I've stored it away. So it's a concept that can be translated either as something that is put away in the sense of uh, like a savings account. Like you put it away for a future use. That's one way to think about that. And another sort of nuance to that word has the idea of it's hidden. So it's not necessarily put away for a rainy day as much as it is just something that has been hidden and concealed. Again, you have to kind of look at the, the, the context to find out. I think that Psalm 119.11 speaks of more of that pack it away, right? Pack it away because you're going to need the truth. Um, and so that's the idea here is that he's actually saying it's as if all of your sin is being stored up over here, right? And so it keeps building and it keeps building it's, it's like this treasure house of wickedness, right? So rather than storing up God's Word in their hearts, they're taking their sin and storing it away in a storehouse. And God is saying, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to judge immediately. I'm going to let you continue to build and build and build and build. But one of, those, one of these days, and it's coming very soon for them, I'm going to open that package. I'm going to open the door on that storehouse. We're going to have a look at that, and all of this judgment is going to come raining down because they keep adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. And their obstinance is, is unbelievable. Verse 13, the, points, the, or excuse me, the pains of childbirth come upon him. Uh, so it, it's this idea of you, you think you're doing well and you think you have things under control, but the pains of delivery are coming. So again, it's this... And again, you could see these even you go to Revelation and even speaking about future prophecy, you have some of the same, these same sort of images come up. But it says, he is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Again, difficult to 
to uh, and some of these some of these verses are just hard to to translate for one and then trying to figure out what what's the connection but this is referring to the birth canal and it's just simply employing this figure of giving birth the lord the lord in a way likens Ephraim here to a child that is unwilling to move through to the birth verse 14 Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? And then this rings a bell, right, when you think about 1 Corinthians. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. So the, the thing here in verse 14, if you, if you just take the last part of verse 14, that last phrase, compassion will be hidden from my sight, if you'll just sort of set that to the side, because it may be better to go with the next verse. But these questions could actually more likely be affirmations. Uh, this is the way the Holman Christian Standard translates verse 14. Uh, it says, I will, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? So these might actually be affirmations of the mercy of God breaking in when you would expect there to be, again, this just exterminating influence in him bringing the sword in a, in, a, in a more permanent way. And this would be consistent, right? I mean, it would be consistent with other Old Testament affirmations of God's faithfulness to say that because we have, for instance, Leviticus 26.44, where God says this, even speaking about their unfaithfulness. They're going to break God's covenant, and he says this, yet, verse 44, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them. So again, this is way back in Leviticus. He's telling them this. So in spite of their infidelity, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them for... So he's saying, I'm not going to break my covenant with them. They're going to be... They're going to violate this covenant, but I'm not going to break that with them... And then the rationale behind that, the last phrase, for I am the Lord their God. Have we heard that before? I mean, this is just the thing that keeps coming up. I am the Lord their God. I am the Lord their God. They've forgotten me, but I'm the Lord their God, right? It's like they don't live in light of that, but it is that fact that is what is driving. Again, the Lord will not deny himself. He is committed to this. He is their God. And so even back in Leviticus, it's pointing to these times when God would chasten and discipline His people and yet, again, not totally, totally exterminate them. And because of that sure future, death and Sheol are, in a way, they're taunted. And you can see how the Apostle Paul would pick this up and use it in his letter to the Corinthians. So there will be a distant redemption, but that doesn't mean that there won't first be a purging judgment And that is how the last line of verse 14, I think, functions more or less as a way to introduce and focus our attention on the judgments that are mentioned in these final two verses, verses 15 and 16. So he pronounces, compassion will be hidden from my sight, and then brings that to bear in verse 15. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. 
They will fall by the sword, their little ones will be dashed into pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. So there will be a reversal of the blessings upon Ephraim, who was fat and satisfied, satisfied with prosperity. And and this, Hosea is simply saying that they are going to be brought low. And Assyria, Assyria in this context, Assyria will be that destructive wind that destructive instrument that will dry up their water, their water sources, turning their fruitfulness into famine. They will be robbed of all their precious resources, and many would lose their lives. They would be slaughtered. And we have seen actually a previous chapter where there's this reference to the death of their, their men, their women, and their children. Why? Notice what he says, verse 16, because of their rebellion. Because they rebel against him and because they rebel against his word. So, this chapter, again, we've talked about this the good news, this good news, bad news thing, this going back and forth throughout the book. This chapter is obviously primarily about God's judgment, but it is this emphasis on judgment that sets up that final chapter of the book. And though Assyria is described as this forceful wind that comes in and just wipes everything out, much more God's mercy and grace will come rolling in like a mighty wave in the end. And so even though there's this imagery of Assyria coming in and bringing this destruction, what you're going to see from the verse 4 of chapter 14 and through the end of the book is to say that destructive power of Assyria isn't anything close to the redemptive, merciful, restorative power of God. And so God will actually take this very same idea of how Assyria comes in, because Assyria, the way the Scriptures present Assyria is they're just a tool in the hand of God, right? So as power, this is a superpower, right? But as powerful as they are, they're still doing only what God wants to use them to do, right? And so we've seen passages that... that uh, that point us in that direction. So we'll pick up in two weeks. We'll get to the, to the end. We'll get to chapter 14, and we'll see how the book, the note that this book ends on. And again, this is back and forth, back and forth, but it's critical for us to know how does that book end, right? Is it ending on bad news, or is it ending on, on hope and this promise of, of restoration? We'll have a great time, I think, together uh, looking at that and then bringing our series to a conclusion.